for this short five-week series. I'm calling it Praying with Paul, and that comes from a book by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. And so I encourage you to get the book. It's excellent. And so that's sort of the inspiration for what we'll be doing in the next five weeks. And the first prayer we'll be looking at is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. And if you're at all familiar with the book of 1 Thessalonians, you probably know that it has a lot to say about the second coming of Christ, or Jesus' return. And so then it shouldn't surprise you that for today's sermon, we'll be seeing how we bring those two together. How do we connect the second coming of Christ and prayer? And what I want you to see is this, that because one day we will all give an account of our lives to God, we should pray for one another. Because one day we will all give an account of our lives to God, we should pray for one another. And specifically, we should pray for one another encouragingly, earnestly, and theologically. So, a great way to start a sermon on prayer is by praying, and then we will read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us through me. Would you remove me out of the way? And would you give us soft, tender hearts to hear what you would have for us today? And would we respond appropriately? Would we think rightly about you? Would we feel appropriately in light of the truths we will hear and learn about? And would we respond in the way we live, in a way that accords with you and your holiness and the return of Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So first, let's set the context. With the church in Thessalonica, this was a church that Paul had planted, and you can read read about it in greater depth in Acts chapter 17. But what you'll see there is Paul planted this church And right away, they experienced a lot of persecution. And so because of that, and a variety of other reasons, Paul's stay with this church was pretty short. And so what we find ourselves in with this passage is that some time has passed, and Paul is concerned about the Thessalonians. He's concerned that because of the persecution, they haven't clung to the faith, they've fallen away, or that he's just concerned about their faith because they're new believers and they're facing persecution. And so out of that concern, Paul sends Timothy to check in on the Thessalonians. And then Timothy comes back and he gives Paul the report. And so we actually read that report in the three verses preceding our passage. So go back to verse 6 and here's the report from Timothy. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So despite Paul's concerns and worries, the Thessalonians are doing pretty well. And that may be a little confusing because in our verse, he talks about wanting to see this group of believers to complete what's lacking in their faith. And I think what Paul is getting at isn't a deficiency in terms of sin or rebellion, but simply a deficiency because of time. He wasn't there very long with them, and so he longs to go back to fill out and flesh out more of the faith to them. But overall, they're doing pretty well. And in fact, they're doing so well that it leads Paul to praise and thank God for them. He thanks God for the Thessalonians. And so with that, I want to remind you one more time what we'll be looking at. And what we're going to see is that because one day we will all give an account to God for our lives, we should pray for one another, just like Paul is praying for the Thessalonians. And we should do so encouragingly, earnestly, and theologically. We'll unpack that in a few minutes. But first, I want to look at the reason for why we should pray that way. Specifically in verse 13. In verse 13, we read Paul's goal or his purpose for why he prays what he prays. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So you can think of it this way. If you or a loved one had a terminal illness, that would radically alter the way you lived your life in the here and now. What you did and how you spoke, what you'd spend your time doing, would be way different than it was before because of that event coming. You knew it was coming. It would change the way you lived. And one commentator speaking on this this idea put it really well. He said, Paul's concern, therefore is not with the amount of time they have left, but with the radical new perspective the foreshortened future gives one with regard to the present age. Those who have a definite future and see it with clarity live in the present with radically altered values as to what counts and what does not. And in light of Jesus' return, what we see is that prayer counts a great deal because the stakes are so high to persevere in holiness to see Jesus. And so with that, let's look at the three ways we should be praying for one another in light of Christ's return. So number one, we should pray for one another encouragingly because one day we will give an account to God. Look at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. When I was in college, I had to write a lot of different papers. And there was a class I had where every week we had a small paper we had to write. And then we would end up discussing whatever the topic was for that week. And I remember one time the professor pulled me aside after class. And he asked me if for the next week he could share my paper from the previous week as an example of what he wanted us to write about, as 
what he was looking for in the papers. And I don't know if my professor was trying to do this, but the way he went about that really encouraged me. And he wanted to use my paper as an example for what he wanted to see in the students' papers. And so, in a similar way, Paul prays for the Thessalonians in such a way that it would encourage them. In other words, he could simply have prayed for them on his own privately and never told them about it. But Paul chooses to pray for them, and then he tells them that he's praying for them and that he thanks God for them. So in the same way, it's good to thank God for people. It's good to thank God for other members of Calvary, but it's even better to do that and then tell them that you're doing that. And so, Calvary, I want to encourage you right now, think about who is someone here that you look at their faith, you look at how they're following Jesus, and their example really encourages you. Who's somebody like that? And whoever that person is, I encourage you to encourage him or her and to be specific. As I was leading up to this Sunday, I was thinking about just that question, and right away, a couple people came to mind. And so I'm like, all right, I better, I better call him. I better, I'm going to call this guy. I'm going to tell him why I'm so thankful for him, why his faith encourages me and spurs me on. And so I encourage you, do the same thing. Think of someone you can build up. Number two, we should pray earnestly for one another because one day we will give an account to God for our life. Look at verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. How you spend your time says a lot about what you prioritize. If you looked at my schedule and you saw what I was spending my time doing, you could come to some conclusions about what I value. Pastor Ben might know this better than others because we talk about this a lot, but if you looked at my schedule, you'd see that three days a week, I go to the gym and work out for 90 minutes each time. And so I make that a priority. I plan for it. The night before, I get my gym clothes ready. I even have my breakfast kind of prepped and ready to go. I get my alarm set, and then I make it happen. And I would tell you that I prioritize or I value exercise or working out. In the same way, the Apostle Paul made prayer a priority. He valued prayer. In our passage, it says that he prayed earnestly night and day for the Thessalonians. And another reason he prays so earnestly for them is because he loves them. He cares about them. We pray for the people we love. I pray for my wife and kids because I love them. And so a simple way for us to apply this It's a plan to pray. Make a plan to pray. D.A. Carson, who I mentioned earlier, says in that book about planning, we will not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must self-consciously set aside time to do nothing but pray. In the same way that three times a week I set aside time to do nothing but work out, We need to be setting time, daily or weekly, to do nothing but pray. And if you have to pick between either not praying or only praying for five minutes, then pick praying. Even if it's for five minutes of focused time, pray. Number three, 
Because of the return of Christ, we should be praying for one another theologically. And I'll unpack that in, in a moment what I mean by that. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. That's where we see that. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Earlier I mentioned that how we spend our time says a lot about what you prioritize, what you care about. In a similar way, what you ask for says a lot about what you value. So leading up to Christmas, if you're asking for, for me, it might be books. You know, I keep asking Kimberly to give me books or something. That would tell you something about what I value. And since my dad's here, I'm going to pick on him. Every Christmas, he would always ask for the same thing. Usually it was socks. And so he really valued a good pair of socks. And since I've gotten older, I've come to really appreciate a good, clean, dry pair of socks. But that was something he valued. And so he asked for it. So now when we look at Paul, we can ask, well, what did he ask for? What was he asking God for? And what we see is that he asked for things, you could say, theologically. And by that I mean he asked for things that are in accord with God's will. Who God is. God's purposes, his plans, his promises. And so then it shouldn't surprise us that one of the things that Paul asked for is that the Thessalonians would be more holy that they would become more and more like Christ. And we know that's God's will, because if you keep going even a few verses, we can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so Paul prays that the Thessalonians would be more and more like Christ. Now one easy way to do this is simply by praying through Scripture. Pray through God's Word. A few weeks ago, Scott Waverin recommended the book Praying the Bible. It's a great book. I recommend you get it. Another great way to do this is simply once a week, or maybe more than once a week, pray through the Lord's Prayer. This morning, as I was thinking about this sermon and just preparing my own heart, I took 10, 15 minutes to pray through the Lord's Prayer, taking it phrase by phrase, meditating on it, and then letting it inform how I prayed for myself, how I was praying for you. So I encourage you, pray through Scripture. Now to draw, some, to draw this to a head now, to bring these threads together, one of the challenges with a sermon like this is that we hear this great ideal or great example of how we should be praying, and we realize very quickly how far we fall short of that. I resonate a lot with what Roy said about, I don't feel like I've ever really just sort of, you know, had a slam dunk when it's come to prayer. I feel like I've always struggled to just kind of limp along and do it. And so that struggle with prayer is something the Bible talks about. In James chapter 4, verse 2 through 3, he talks about this challenge. James says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our biggest problem with prayer is ourselves. 
That's the biggest obstacle we have to praying, is our own selfishness, our own sin, our own depravity. We don't pray encouragingly because we're selfish, because we just think about ourselves, we're self-centered. We often don't pray earnestly for others because we idolize our own comfort, our own plans, our own agenda. And we rarely pray theologically because we would much rather have our own will be done rather than God's will done. But that's not true with Jesus, is it? That when you look to Christ, he succeeds gloriously where we fail miserably. Jesus prayed encouragingly. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus back to life from the dead. And what's incredible is the way he prays. Look at John chapter 11, verse 42. This is Jesus praying right before he raises Lazarus back to life from the dead. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays in such a way that it would build up and encourage others, and ultimately that they would come to believe and trust in him. Jesus also prayed earnestly. If you spend any time reading the Gospels, you'll see a common pattern in Jesus' life, that he makes it a habit to go away to a desolate place, to be alone, and to do what? To pray. He spends extended time to do nothing but pray. And finally, Jesus prays theologically. When Jesus, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to be crucified, what does he do? He prays. That's right. Amen. He prays. And what he prays is incredible. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When I think about Jesus in the garden praying, it just, it takes me to the core because we fail miserably at that. And we are so utterly deficient and dependent on him. But as Pastor Ben loves to say, Jesus is sufficient. He's more than enough. And he surrenders his will to the Father for our sake. And the incredible thing about prayer is that prayer is so special and amazing because of Christ. That prayer is one way that Jesus will hold us fast to the end. We've got to remember that, that it's Jesus who holds us fast to the end. We're deficient, but Jesus is more than sufficient to hold us to the end to that glorious day when we finally meet him face to face. Let's pray, Calvary. Our eternal God, you providentially order all things. And so we ask that you would bring us 
into the lives of other Christians. Here at Calvary and the Fargo-Moorhead area, across the entire world. And would you do that so that we might encourage each other to persevere in holiness? That we might remind each other of our sufficient Savior, the one who will hold us fast to that day. And we will meet him face to face. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.